Hello, and welcome to this special anniversary edition of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. We don't have a new episode going up today, but we are rebroadcasting one of our personal favorites, which is our 10th episode on Tracy K. Smith's The Weather in Space. When we recorded this episode, Tracy K. Smith had not yet become Poet Laureate, so we wanted to bring it back additionally now that she's in that position. This is, in fact, the one-year anniversary of the very first episode of Close Talking going up. That one was a literary reflection on an electoral aberration. Since that first episode, Connor and I have put up 23 more with artists as diverse as Eduardo Corral, whose poem Sentence was covered in our most recent episode, the 24th. We also talked about Yusuf Kumanyaka and Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman and Ocean Vong, among many, many more. We try to have a wide variety of representation on the podcast. We try to include uh, all different types of voices, different uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds, people of uh, a whole variety of gender identities, people of different ages from different time periods. We even did an episode on Shakespeare. We really try to have as wide a spread of poets and poems, styles and voices as we can. And we want to hear from you. Please let us know if you think we're doing a good job of that, if we're doing a bad job, anything we could do better. Uh, A quick mention of all the different places you can find this podcast seems appropriate one year after we started. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. But more importantly, there are a whole bunch of different ways for you, the listeners, to get in touch with Connor and myself, because we want to hear from you and we want to make sure that we are creating a podcast that you want to listen to. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash close talking or more conventionally at close talking. You can get in touch with Connor or myself directly on Twitter at hot sauce box for Connor and at Jack Rossiter Munn for myself. We also have a Gmail account, close talking poetry at gmail.com which is the best place partially because it allows you more than, well, what used to be 140 and now is 280 characters to expand upon either poetic suggestions for poems you might want us to cover at some point or to let us know if you think that there's something we're doing well or something that we need to improve in the podcast. One year in, I can tell you that Connor and I are having a blast doing this podcast. We love preparing for it. We love talking to each other about poems. And we love hearing from people who want uh, more of what we have going on. So I don't want to talk too much longer. I want to get right into our episode uh, from a couple months ago about Tracy K. Smith's The Weather in Space. But thank you so much for making the experience of doing this podcast as rewarding as it is. Uh, Hearing from listeners and knowing that there are people out there enjoying what we do makes it all the more fun and meaningful to be doing this. And now, without further ado, here is our take on Tracy K. Smith's The Weather in Space. Welcome! 
Welcome to another episode of Close Talking with me, Jack Rossiter Munley. And me, Connor McNamara Stratton. And this week we are talking about a poem that Connor picked. So, Connor, take it away. Yes, this poem we're going to talk about and read is called The Weather in Space by Tracy K. Smith. So, we're going to read the poem, we're going to talk about it for a while, and then we're going to read it again. And just a bit of context uh, Tracy K. Smith was born in 1972, and she is um, the author of three collections of poetry and a memoir that just came out this year called Ordinary Light, which uh, my girlfriend Sarita recently got, and I'm very excited to start reading it. I heard it's very good. Um, This poem is actually the very first poem of her collection, Life on Mars, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011. And that collection is like one of the best collections of poetry that I've ever read. It's so good. And it's kind of about sort of like a book length elegy to her dad who passed away and he was an astronomer, I think astrophysicist. And it's also sort of about David Bowie and it's a kind of about race and God and science. Really good. Anyway, so this is the weather in space. Is God being or pure force? The wind or what commands it? When our lives slow and we can hold all that we love, it sprawls in our laps like a gangly doll. When the storm kicks up and nothing is ours, we go chasing after all we're certain to lose so alive, faces radiant with panic. That's it. So good. Short but powerful. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, I love this poem. Um, it's, sort part- of, it's hard not to. Yeah. No, I, I don't want to belittle your affection for it, but I feel like <laughs> this is the kind of poem that it's hard not to find a lot of ways into and around and through and just to really. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's totally right. So one thing that's interesting just sort of broadly is it is not a narrative poem. So there's no speaker who's like in a physical place. One poem that we I think just talked about is what the living do. And and that's a great example of a beautiful narrative poem where the speaker is like going about her daily life. And this one rather is sort of a voice who is asking, you know, the big questions about life and God and belief and love and loss, I think. Um, Is God being or pure force the wind or what commands it? Um, And I think... You know, uh, it's interesting, just one little thing, because there's a lot to talk about that. So the weather in space is such an interesting uh, title. I mean, A, just by itself, I don't know what the weather's like in space. Maybe this poem will give me some clue. Probably not. She pretty quickly is like, no, I'm not talking about that per se. But what she does is by, by going in, is God being or pure force being the first line, after the title, The Weather in Space, there's a connection that she's making between 
space as in actual outer space and sort of heavenly divine God, um, which, which is perfect for her book, which I'm basically just going to give a little advertisement for this book because it's so good. Um, this is the perfect like prologue poem for this book because it really like opens, it's an opening poem. It opens up all these questions about all these different topics that um, are not neatly resolved, I think, in this poem. And so as the, as the, it sets up a lot of the thematic issues that she grapples with throughout. I think it's really, I have a couple of thoughts. Uh, one of which is just as she pairs the weather in space with is God, the, con the sort of convergence of space and God and heaven is something that, you know, we've always thought of heaven as being up, but Yuri Gagarin, the first human to enter space, the Russian cosmonaut, it's not 100% certain what the exact quote is or if he said it or if a state official said it, but basically that upon reaching space when he came back, one of his comments was, I looked and looked and I saw no God. So the first human interactions whether that tale is true or apocryphal, it has become one of the most popular apocryphal tellings of human interaction with space. And it's the very first, when he went up in 1961, this is one of the first stories that comes out of his trip is that he had this to say about it or that the Russians talking about it had this to say about it, which can get into a whole communism and not being into religion, but Really, I think the central thing there is just those two are sort of inextricably linked. Um, and, and the idea of broadness is here. There is no I in this poem ever mentioned. The speaker is almost as universal as possible. The title, I think, is interesting in orienting us to say the weather in space, because that might lead me as a reader. And in fact, I did before I read the poem think, oh, maybe there's going to be some sort of meteorological terminology. Maybe there will be some sort of connection between this idea of weather and this setting that seems sort of contradictory for that topic. There's none of that. And I think what, what she's indicating with that is that contesting winds in space are the biggest and broadest possible questions because on a scientific and spiritual level, space is where we go to grapple with those questions. Science in exploring the very nature of reality, the physics of it, and where it all originated in the Big Bang, looks to space. And space is the place where we have traditionally placed God and heaven and angels and the sort of spiritual mysteries. It's also where they reside. And the fact that these two major forces are there, what do they deal with? They deal with all the things we love, all the things we might chase. And when we look at space and we contemplate it and we think about the vastness of it and we think about all that it contains and the questions and the answers that live there, yeah, our faces are probably radiant with panic because it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> it's a whole lot of infinite nothing. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, maybe some aliens somewhere. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. That was great. I didn't know where you were going to go. And then when you went where you went, I was like, wow, that's right. Brilliant. Um, okay. You've given me a lot to think about. One thing that I love that you've mentioned is the weather, not meteorology. In fact, 
more figurative, divine, which we've talked about. So the storm, when the storm kicks up and nothing is ours, that is a figurative storm of just, you know, the chaos of life, things happening that you don't want to happen or whatever. Um, and and, That's and it. yeah. I read the storm as being okay. when all of these ideas come together in conflict, not like everyday life causing us challenges. Okay. I read that almost as entirely conceptual. So when oh. God comes in, like, is God being or pure force? When these kinds of questions are asked, when this big swirling mass of uncertainty comes together and kicks up like the giant storm on Jupiter that's three times the size of Earth or any other celestial occurrence that is just so massive when these enormous collides happen when that all kicks up nothing is ours we can't hold on to the the conceptual moorings that give us our sense of who we are and so we have to try and find it and we're never going to find a complete answer we are certain to lose as she says mm -hmm. but we are so alive that's what makes life interesting I love that you brought that up. And I think that's like a really, that's a great reading. And one thing that I think this poem demonstrates, especially this kind of poem, which is sort of less rooted in narrative or concrete things is that it, I think it opens itself up to a much larger variety of interpretations. So because we're not actually talking about a physical storm, and there's a there's not like a photo of a storm that's like this is the one storm that i am referring to in this poem the reader has the ability and it is in fact required to approach it from wherever they are in their life and with whatever sense of assumptions that these words and language provokes and that's going to in in a poem that is like this i think more in some ways more general or more broad um, opens itself up to that kind of ambiguity, which I think some people find frustrating. I find it delightful. So I love that you brought up this faces radiant with panic uh, and that being quote unquote fucking terrifying. Um, totally right. But then I also love that you brought up so alive that, that this is so the last two lines after all we're certain to lose, so alive, faces radiant with panic. The complexity of sort of tone and emotion in this is amazing and so concise. So panic, fucking terrified, we're panicking, but then we're radiant. So we're, we're exuding light. We're basically a sun of panic, which is radiance is often this you know, powerful, like positive um, connotation, but then paired with panic, that really gets at a lot of the thrust of this poem. Focusing on this, this other part of the poem will help illuminate this complexity. So the second line, when our lives slow and we can hold all that we love. So I'm thinking that's great. I want to hold all that I love because what I love, I want. And when I have it, that should be good. Then she describes it, it, which I think refers to all that we love, sprawls in our laps like a gangly doll. That is not exactly the 
positive simile for achieving sort of rewarding life love or something. No. It's, it's, it's very static. It's very stagnant. It's very passive. It's almost, it's childish. There's a gangly doll in your lap. Um, and Plus, so, just the word gangly as a descriptor, I'm not picturing a nice doll. I'm picturing an ugly corn husk monstrosity that yeah. someone dropped in my lap that I don't even want there. Exactly. So the doll's not even good. It's like it's not even a quality doll. Um, and yet that's when we have all that we love. That's when, that's when we're holding it. And so then when the storm kicks up and nothing is ours, so we're thinking storm, chaos, total absence of possession. This is going to be when life is most uncertain, most devastating, etc. Um, we go chasing after all we're certain to lose, so alive. And that's when Smith suggests that's where true life is, so alive. Of course, we're living all, like when we have the gangly doll, but now we're so alive. And so that, I think, is an uncomfortable tension that she is grappling with of, I think that I should be the most happy here, but in fact, some part of my feelings are telling me this is where life is. Those last two lines really stuck out to me. And I absolutely think the juxtaposition of this apparently exciting kind of chaos and the sort of rot and dread of having a life where everything is put together or thinking perhaps the perception that everything is put together because this poem is interested in that contest and that storm. What was really interesting to me about these last two lines, um, question, because I have not read this exceptional book, you said this makes a fitting prologue poem. Is it in fact the prologue to the book? It is the very first poem and, it, and then section one starts. That's yeah. amazing because what the last two lines of this to me remind me of more than anything is the ending of The Great Gatsby, perhaps one of the most famous endings in the history of all literature. But if you look at what this line is saying, after all, we're certain to lose, so alive faces radiant with panic. Let's look quickly at the last couple lines of The Great Gatsby. Let's do it. We're taking a literature <laughs> trip. So here's the ending, uh, the very last bit. So basically at the end of the book, sort of as this is speaking in universal terms, literally the text says that Nick, the narrator is sitting and he sees everything dissolve. And suddenly he's viewing the world as those who came in the 1600s views it and all the houses drop away and he's in the wilderness. And then he's reflecting on the story we've just heard in universal terms. And this is what he concludes with. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch our arms farther. And one fine morning, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. What's particularly interesting to me is that the break between the 
penultimate line in this poem and the last line is signaled by a dash and the break there is also signaled by a dash. Ooh. I don't know if she's specifically referencing that, but to me, the message is very similar, which in Gatsby is like, all of Gatsby's striving got him nothing but a nice house and no one at his funeral, and the woman he loves is still married to the douche. I recently <laughs> had to read that again. God, that guy's a fucker. Oh right. my God. Anyway, continue. What's his name? Tom. Tom Buchanan, worst person in the world. I'm Tom. Jesus. Uh, anyway, but. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. I think we've all been there with Tom Buchanan. <laughs> I believe most of the characters in the book have gotten there with Tom Buchanan. That's true. Anyway, uh, but what the end of the book is sort of getting at, and I think the reason that a lot of people ascribe it, you know, American Dream, whatever, is this idea that, yeah, we beat on, we're fighting against the current, we will always be sort of pushed back into you know, whatever has receded behind us, there's this very nostalgic turn right before those lines that I read about where the sort of essential Americanness lives in the dark fields of the Republic that run on ceaselessly into the night. That's where what Gatsby wanted lived, all this sort of stuff. But this idea that there is something really essential to the struggle and to trying and to striving and to having some sort of even if it's not an explicit goal, something that pushes you to keep rowing against the current or here, go chasing after what you're certain to lose. Really strive to look at those hard questions that have no answers, those celestial level inquiries that there is no definitive answer to. What does life mean? Is God the wind or what commands it? There's no way to empirically answer that question you can figure out the mechanics of wind, the physics of an expanding universe. You can't answer those essential questions. And the message I get from this really resonates to me, both on just a structural, the way it's written level and on a conceptual level with that ending of Gatsby. And I find it so interesting that they serve similar purposes where the ending of Gatsby contextualizes that story from the end point by pulling it out. This contextualizes her book by putting it right at the beginning. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, no, I think that's a, that is a good connection. Um, and I love, yeah, I love that line. This is so, all right, I've got some, some uh, poetry, uh, formal nerd stuff that uh, I kind of want to get into. Is that? Please, please do that voodoo that you do so well, <laughs> is okay. all I have to say. <laughs> okay, well, the, fir the first part is with that line, after all, we're certain to lose. So this is a perfect, I think, case study of what lines can allow in terms of ambiguity of interpretation. So one thing that's great is this line could be read as, kicks up and nothing is ours. We go chasing, after all, we're certain to lose, so alive. Or it could be, kicks up and nothing is ours, we go chasing. After all, we're certain to lose, so alive. So there's the, the phrase, after all, we're certain to lose, could be a separate grammatical clause that's like an aside, like after all, we're fucked. Um, or it can be the, the 
the transitive, like we go chasing after all that stuff, which we are certain to lose. Um, and I think that having those both there, or at least having the question of the slip of like, how do I read this? Because it's not exactly clear is, is allowed because of the line break. That's my first poetry nerd uh thing i i know i love it and that's exactly when i was reading it the first couple times i was trying to figure out whether one of those felt more like her intention and right. i think the answer is the intention is for the ambiguity and she right. wants you to really dig into that line because that's where her message is coming through and i think by doing that level of work to make that line ambiguous it forces the reader to then double down on your own engagement with the work at the moment that it needs you to do that the most, which I think is just really fine craft on her part. Yeah, Tracy K. Smith is such a craft expert. Oh my God. So next poetry. So I, all right, this is gonna be a bit of a, a long haul because I got a lot to say that's gonna be maybe boring, but I think it's actually very interesting. So. The, hopefully you'll agree. If you don't, let me know. I won't nerd out. But that's what we're here to do. So one if thing- If you don't want people nerding out about poetry, you need a different <laughs> podcast. That's true. I Yeah, I should not say that anymore on the podcast. It's sort of, <laughs> that's why people are here. Um, broad statement, short poems, very hard to pull off. Why? There's not that much space to make your point and make it interesting. What does that mean? You've got to be very precise in terms of the language that you're using, but also you have to use all of the um, tools that poetry affords you. So one major aspect of that is going to be like rhythm or meter. Um, and I think that this poem is a really great example of uh, rhythm being used to facilitate that, I think, marvelous twist at the end. Because I think when you read it, faces radiant with panic just comes at you like nobody's business and it hits you and you don't know why it hits you or at least it hits me and it gives me that kind of damn what just happened i need to read this again and so then i started thinking how does this work so i did a little uh very nerdy metric analysis so crash course meter meter like for example iambic pentameter is composed of syllables and stress right so iambic pentameter has 10 syllables and five stressed syllables but up but up but up but up but up um iambic pentameter I, if you will pent pentameter five <laughs> five feet uh five in iams which are the greek yada so now, proper meter in sort of like contemporary American poetry is less frequent, I think. But one thing that has endured, especially, is the idea of stressed syllables and like having uh, carefully placed stressed syllables is one of the tools that I think contemporary poets are still doing a lot. What I noticed in this poem is basically the first, it's a seven line poem, and the first six lines all kind of have five stresses, I think. 
So as an example, the first line is God being or pure force, the wind. Um, so God is stressed. I think the first part of being is stressed, pure force and the wind. I think those are all stressed. And then, or what commands it when our lives slow? I feel like I'm hearing those stresses. Um, so I think that's, that's the kind of pattern that goes. So is God being or pure force, the wind or what commands it when our lives slow and we can hold all that we love, it sprawls, etc. And so this is established. Then the other part that's interesting is there's a punctuation or a caesura, which is a sort of poetry term that means there's a kind of stop or a pause in the middle of a line. So the first line is God being or pure force, question mark, the wind, and then there's a line break. Um, so the question mark is the caesura. So there's a caesura in all six, basically, of the first, the first six lines. So is God being or pure force, question mark, or what commands it, question mark, and we can hold all that we love, comma, in our laps like a gangly doll, period, kicks up and nothing is arms, and nothing is ours, comma, after all, we're certain to lose, comma. When I think you read it, these techniques are not something that you need to be like noticing consciously for it to work on you. You, you can't, you, you don't need to be like, oh, we've got five stresses. Oh, we've got these caesuras, like I'm ready. It's, it's a rhythmic. It's, it's the feeling that those techniques elicit in you and how the author can deploy them or then remove them to heighten the experience of reading them. It's the technical aspect of the work, the same way that you don't have to know that a low shot of someone means that they're powerful and a high shot means that they are not powerful in a film. You get that sense because they exactly. look bigger or smaller on the screen. It's the same here that yeah. you have this break in the line, which makes you as the reader experience it differently. So that yeah. instead of me just as a film director shooting someone straight on, I am lowering or raising my frame to give you a visual sense because my tools in telling that story are visual. Her tools here are the way that poetry frees her up to play with language in a way that an essay or a book would not. Yes, precisely. So, and then the last sort of thing that's set up is the first four lines all begin without a stressed first syllable. So is God being, then the next line, or what commands it, and we can hold in our laps like a gangly doll. Then we start to get this turn. And so in the fifth line, they, we have stressed a stressed first syllable. So in our laps like a gangly doll, period, when the storm kicks up and nothing is ours, we go chasing. And so that kick, that little stress where we've been trained because of the first four words to sort of like um, be like ba-da, ba-da, or like whatever, kicks. And kicks is such a great word to have that like first word punch, um, we're like quietly being like, okay, something is shifting. And then notably the last two lines also begin with stresses on the first part of the line. So after all, we're certain to lose faces radiant with panic. So that's, that's, the, that's one of the mechanisms. And then the last line I think works so well because it's, only three or maybe four stresses. 
So we've had six lines of five stresses, and then we have faces radiant with panic, cut short. And it cut short notably, I think, right where all of the sejuras have been happening in the first six lines. So the first six lines have been setting us up for this pause, but then there's like this, this extra stress that leads into the next line. And we've been doing that kind of mechanical rotation for six lines and we're expecting it by the end. And then she goes, faces radiant with panic, done, clips it off. Um, and I think that plus the shift in the beginning stresses is like, I don't know, it's just, a, it's a perfect way to rhythmically just conclude and twist and shift in such a short amount of time. I mean, this is such a compressed poem. Um, and I think that's done so expertly in terms of craft. And I just wanted to like, I don't usually try to talk about uh, I am, <laughs> but um, this I is- I am what I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, there's my poetry nerd moment. Um, no, I think that's great. And what I think is really interesting is that the way the poem is put together with those stresses, where that turn comes in having the stresses at the beginning mm -hmm. is also where the poem sort of opens up because the beginning starts with this, you know, broadest possible question. It then sort of comes down to a point in the middle where you're centered on a doll on someone's lap. That's a very small contained space and image. And then it expands back out to these universal things and inter in expanding back out to these universal questions a we is added in who is viewing them and thinking about them. But that point in the middle is also coupled with the idea of when our lives slow and when it condenses to a point, the universe itself, which is ostensibly where we're hanging out, whether in space, right? The universe used to be a small contained point and now it expands continuously forever. And in fact, that expansion is what keeps it going. And that, endless yeah. expansion is necessary when it starts going the other way we have some serious issues if you are concerned about the election of donald trump or if you are concerned about brexit i feel your pain but if the news shows up tomorrow that the universe is now shrinking we have much larger problems because <laughs> the entire world as we know it is coming to an end and i hate to break it to you but the Avengers are not real. So they will not find the Infinity Gauntlet and turn it all back around. <laughs> they will in fact continue to be the creations of Stanley and co. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that those, that where that turn comes to greater expansion, you have these lines that are quite literally kicking off. Yeah. And they really start with a bang, like the big bang. And they oh, wow. really expand out from that sort of impact point. Yeah, and and the last thing too is is the first five lines are all uh, have enjambments, uh, and that's another sort of poetry word, which is just when the line breaks before uh, the clause ends. So um, the wind line break, or what commands it when our lives slow line break and we can hold all that we love. 
And so that also gives the beginning this forward momentum where we're like, what's the next line? What's the next line? Um, and then she ends it quickly. One poem that now reminds me of this is the Gwendolyn Brooks, The Pool Players. Yeah, so that one is a great example of the enjambment cutting off at the end too. So just, we, it's very short, so I can read that, yeah. So we real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. And then the poem ends. Um, and so they both work similarly in terms of this enjambment of the we, this enjambment in these first five lines where you're expecting this next thing to come and you're also expecting this extra syllable and then the last line denies you that. And so you're left with this, this sort of tightening. Um, I think that's, that's what I got. Should we read it again? I love it. Let's read it again. Let's read it again. All right. All right. This is Weather in Space by Tracy K. Smith. Is God being or pure force, the wind or what commands it? When our lives slow and we can hold all that we love, it sprawls in our laps like a gangly doll. When the storm kicks up and nothing is ours, we go chasing. After all, we're certain to lose, so alive, faces radiant with panic. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, or if you hate it, please, please write a review on iTunes. We are at facebook.com slash close talking and twitter.com slash close talking where you can keep up with our news and other poetry and book related stuff if you have another reading of one of our poems or think there's something you'd like to add or if you have a suggestion for something we haven't talked about please shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com 